If you would turn to James chapter 5, we're going to go to chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 here in just a moment. Ken already has a scripture on the screen. Give me just a moment before we read it. I did get a message just a few minutes ago from Richard Lotz that Lauren came home Friday. So Lauren, their daughter, came home on Friday and actually had a surprise visit from their si- from siblings Autumn and Nathan to help Lauren and her husband Andrew. And uh, they had a wind shear, possible tornado that ripped trees and ruined outdoor things. And the siblings are helping clean that up. So praise God that she is back home and doing okay. Also, one announcement I forgot to mention. Tim Burnsley is a book study through uh, A.W. Tozer Books. And they're meeting this coming um, Saturday at 9 a.m. here. They're resuming this Saturday. And there's information about that in your bulletin. So James chapter 5 here in just a moment. As I set that up, we're going to come back to the idea of waiting. I find waiting quite difficult, and having patience while waiting is even more challenging, isn't it? Waiting can be difficult, and it's hard to wait with patience. You see, we can wait without being patient, can't we? We can wait. Sometimes we don't have a choice but to wait. And so sometimes, many times, we wait, but we're not being patient. I was on my way to seminary one day. I was making the two-hour commute from Cincinnati to, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, to Wilmore, Kentucky. And all of a sudden, the traffic stopped, and I sat in the same place for three hours on Interstate 75, south, heading to Wilmore, Kentucky. The traffic did not move for three hours. There was no way to get away to, um, <coughs> I'm sorry, excuse me, I swallowed something wrong. There was no way to turn around. I couldn't cross the median, and that's illegal anyways, but there, you know, you're in Kentucky, and there's some hills in between, so we just had to sit there for three hours as God taught me patience. One waits so long and then grows impatient. Impatience can lead to complaining, grumbling, and an overall bad Christian testimony, right? Impatience can lead to this bad Christian testimony, grumbling, complaining, anger, rage, and so much more. In today's scripture passage found in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, James gives some serious instructions to the rich who have everything And then he gives a loving exhortation to the poor people. As we look at this passage, you will see that the rich are warned to repent. And they're warned why they must repent. And the poor are exhorted to be patient and wait on the Lord for he is near. Let me repeat that for emphasis. As we look at this passage, you will see the rich are warned to repent. And why they must repent. And the poor are exhorted to be patient and wait on the Lord, for he is near. And let me say right off the bat, you know, it seems as we look behind, behind this scripture passage that there certainly were rich exploiting the poor. It seems as though the rich in this context had, had, had withheld wages from the poor, had robbed the poor, had dragged the poor into courts, and in some way, shape, or form have even killed the poor. That does not mean that James is condemning and that the Bible is condemning people with wealth in every single context. You know, the point is that we need to set, um, store up our treasures in heaven, not on earth. So let's look at James 5, 1 through 11. And if you're um, filling in the blanks in your bulletin, the first two blanks are right there in verse 1. And as I read it, um, Ken's going to actually uh, uh, go through the scripture which is on the screen. So he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl, first two blanks, 
for your miseries which are coming upon you. Weep in hell for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the payer of the labors, and the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren. Notice how he switches in verse 7. He was calling out the rich, and now he's switching. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So let's look at the verses 1 through 6. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. In these verses, James warns the rich to repent, and then he describes why they must repent. He warns them to repent, and then he describes why they must repent. James once again starts with the phrase, come now. Or in the NIV, he says, now listen, now listen. James is simply getting their attention. He's simply getting their attention. He's basically just saying, listen up, getting their attention. Now look at verse 1. James says, weep and howl. And that's back on the screen right now. Weep and howl. And this is not simply crying or mourning. This carried the idea of loud cries. This is a public sign of mourning. Verse 1 is very much reminiscent of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are places where the prophet Jeremiah or Ezekiel, and there's another slide for this, um, Ken and Megan, where the prophet Jeremiah or Ezekiel would tell people they need to repent. They need to weep and howl. And that's a slide, so if you scroll down. There it is. So that's your next blank. If you're, if you're trying to pay attention using the fill in the blanks, that's your next one. And then there's, it's going to be a few minutes before the next one. So James is writing much like an Old Testament prophet, much like an Old Testament prophet would call out the people and tell them to mourn over sin, to weep and howl over the sin. James says they must weep and howl because of the misery that is coming upon them. Now, who is James calling out right now? He's calling out the rich who are exploiting the poor. He's calling the rich to weep and howl because they're exploiting the poor right now. 
What misery is James talking about, though? James calls the rich out and says, Weep in hell because their misery has come upon them. What misery is he talking about? I believe James is referring to a final judgment. Again, like an Old Testament prophet, James affirms a final judgment. And James is about to describe why they will be judged. Why they will be judged. Verse 2 is in the past tense. Notice that. Verse 2 is in the past tense. But I believe this is only because James is looking at it from the judgment seat. James is looking at it from the judgment seat. Verse 2, he says, he says, Your riches have rotted, past tense, have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. In verse 3, your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. He is writing in the past tense, writing from the judgment seat's perspective. I don't think their riches had already rotted, but they will rot. James' point is that they will. They have stored up for themselves treasures on earth. In Matthew 6, 19 through 20, Jesus exhorted his followers to store up treasures in heaven that last for eternity, not on earth where moth and rust corrupt. You have to wait on the Lord for heavenly treasures, don't you? We do. You have to wait. Most people want their treasure now. We want our reward now. We want all the goodness now. Where is your treasure? This is a good place for me to share a short story that is true, by the way. A woman in West Palm Beach, Florida, died alone at the age of 71, died alone. The coroner's report was tragic. Causes of death, malnutrition. The dear old lady wasted away to 50 pounds. Investigators who found her said the place where she lived was a veritable pig pit. The biggest mess you can imagine. One seasoned inspector declared he'd never seen a residence in greater disarray. The woman had begged food at her neighbor's house. And all the clothes she had came from the Salvation Army. From all outward appearances, she was a penniless recluse, a pitiful and forgotten widow, but such was not the case. Amid the jumble of her unclean, disheveled belongings, two keys were found, which led the officials to safe deposit boxes at two different locations. What they found was, an, was absolutely unbelievable. The first safe deposit box contained over 700, 700 AT&T stock certificates, plus hundreds of other valuable certificates, bonds, and solid financial securities, not to mention a stack of cash amounting to nearly $200,000. $200,000. The second safe deposit box had no worth, um, had... Well over a million dollars. Wait. The second safe deposit box had more currency. Lots of it. $600,000 to be exact. Adding the net worth of both boxes, this woman had over a million dollars. Charles Osgood, reporting on CBS radio, announced that the estate would probably fall into the hands of a distant niece and nephew, neither of whom dreamed she had a thin dime to her name. She was, however, a millionaire who died a stark victim of starvation in a humble hovel many miles away. Sometimes we hoard things. We hoard things and we end up harming ourselves and those around us. But James is exhorting us, as Jesus exhorted us, to store up treasures in heaven. 
Store up treasures in heaven. Verse 3 continues the theme about the material possessions that are falling apart. But these material possessions talk. James says these material possessions are, are a testimony of the person's character. In verse 4, we find out what is going on. In verse 4, he says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, in which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Now, when it says Sabbath, what that means is Lord of hosts, Lord of heaven's armies. And he's saying the Lord, the Lord of lords, has heard the cry of the poor. The Lord of heaven's armies has heard the cry of those who you refuse to pay. The lower class, poor people, worked for the rich. They worked and they haven't been paid. That is the situation that James describes. The ESV study Bible says these landowners have cheated their, work, their, their field workers and harvesters to support their own lavish lifestyle. They have cheated the people who work for them. And now the cries of the defrauded have reached the ears of the final judge who will soon act in response. The Lord of hosts or Lord of heaven's armies pictures God as a warrior going into battle against his enemies. And you can see 1 Samuel 17.45 and Revelation 17.14 and 19.14 about that. The IVP Bible Backroads Commentary, another really good source, shares this. The law of Moses, that would be the first five books of the Old Testament. The law of Moses forbade withholding wages. Even overnight, even overnight, they were not supposed to withhold wages. If the injured, uh, in, the law, in the law of Moses, it said, if the injured worker cried out to God... God would avenge him. And you can see several texts for that. Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15. Leviticus 19, 13. Proverbs eleven twenty four, 24. Jeremiah 22, 13. Malachi 3, 5. That the wrong done the oppressed would itself cry out to God against the oppressor was also an Old Testament image. See Genesis 4.10. In first century Palestine, many day laborers depended on their daily wages to purchase food for themselves and their families. Withholding money could mean that they would go hungry. The income absentee landlords received from agriculture was such that the wages they paid workers could not even begin to reflect the profits they accumulated. They received plenty of money. There is no excuse for withholding money. At least as early as the second century, Jewish teachers suggested that even failing to leave gleanings for the poor was robbing them, which the Old Testament talks about too in Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, as well as Leviticus 23, 22 in Deuteronomy 24, 19. Verse 5, back to James chapter 5, verse 5 affirms that they are living in plenty. If you look, you can see where James says they are living in want and pleasure. And that's the next, um, no it's not, never mind. Continue as you were. Uh, they were living in wanton pleasure, self-indulgence. The Greek word where we get wanton pleasure or self-indulgence can carry the idea of unrestrained pleasure or even sexual pleasure. The people, the rich, were living in wanton pleasure, sexual pleasure, unrestrained pleasure. Then verse 6 is the strongest. In verse 6 he says, uh, he, he uses the second person pronoun you. James continuously uses this pronoun you to accuse them. I count 10 times that James writes with you or your. 10 times he writes with you or your. James accuses them of murder. That's a strong accusation. And there could be two ways that they had murdered, um, they had murdered the poor. 
Either they are guilty of murder by not paying the poor, and because they don't pay the poor, the poor or their families are going hungry, or they have used the courts to condemn innocent people to death. And we do know from James chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, that the, that the rich were dragging the poor into courts, falsely accusing them. Either way, they are accused of murder. It is clear that James makes a strong case of why the rich need to repent. Now, these rich may be non-Christians, or maybe they are Christians that, that aren't living for the gospel, and they need to repent. Where are we at right now? Let's apply this. Are we oppressing anyone who works for us? It may not be withholding money, but it could be withholding respect. When I worked as a McDonald's manager, when I worked at Lowe's and Tractor Supply Company, I saw, and also a pet store and retail, I saw many times where supervisors or district managers or superintendents were completely disrespectful to those that worked under them. I saw many times, especially as a McDonald's manager, where they would make salary managers work six to seven days a week, six to seven, 12-hour days repeatedly. They had no choice. I'll ask again, are your treasures on earth? If you say no, does your life reflect that your treasures in heaven? Verse 5 is particularly applicable to us. We live in a country of self-indulgence and wanton pleasure. Is your entertainment and enjoyment pure and holy? And by the way, that's the next two blanks on your, on your insert. We live in a country of self-indulgence and wanton pleasure, don't we? Do you put entertainment and enjoyment in front of your relationship with God? Do you put entertainment and enjoyment in front of your relationship with God? By the way, this is ex especially applicable with sporting events that are so often on Sundays or in place of church events. Do you value entertainment over devotional time with God? What about that? No time in the Word means no breakfast. If your devotions are in the evening, no TV time, no movies, no, no whatever until you have your time in the Word. Are you putting enjoyment and pleasures in front of God? Please know I battle these things too, so I don't mean to talk down to you. I must ask myself these questions as well. So if you look at verses 7 through 11, James exhorts the poor to be patient in their suffering. Be patient in their suffering. The verb we get be patient from carries the idea that they are waiting for something. What are they waiting for? They are waiting for the Lord's return. They are waiting for the Lord's return. And I just lost my, my technology went bad. Okay. And you know what? We are still waiting on the Lord's return. Now, some of us may ask, why hasn't he returned yet? Well, remember, there's a few things we can, we can talk about there. 2 Peter 3.8 says that a day, in the, a day to the Lord is like a thousand years. And then 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is waiting for more to be saved. The Lord desires a relationship with us. The Lord desires a relationship with everyone who lives. And that's what he's waiting on. And you may ask, who is he waiting on? He's waiting on you and me to share the gospel with people. He's waiting for more people to be saved. James then gives the people the example of the prophets. You see, the prophets were persecuted, right? In Acts 5.41, in the New Testament, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the people rejoiced that they were counted worthy to be persecuted for Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. 
You may ask, why does God allow bad things to happen? A lot of people always ask that. And we can't answer that for sure. But sometimes God is letting us go through certain trying times to build us up, to develop us, to make us mature. Many times we do not mature in the Lord. We do not grow up in the Lord without trials and difficulties. And we never know how the Lord's going to take a little small thing and use it for good. We just don't know. We don't see it from his perspective. Chuck Colson was Richard Nixon's hatchet man, and he went to jail. But right before he went to jail, in the 1970s, he was saved. He gave his life to Christ. And after he came out of jail, he started Prison Fellowship Ministries, which has ministered to many prisoners across the, the country and even the world. He started what's now called the Colson Center, which gives a lot of good worldview materials to people. He, God took a bad situation and used it for good. Many times we have to go through trials and tribulations to develop us. A young man desired to go to India as a missionary with the London Missionary Society. Mr. Wilkes was appointed to consider the young man's fitness for such a post. He wrote to the young man and he told him to call on him at 6 o'clock the next morning. 6 a.m. he was supposed to come to this appointment. Although the applicant lived many miles off, he was at the house punctually at 6 o'clock and was ushered into the drawing room. He waited and waited and waiting, waited, wanderingly but patiently. Finally, Mr. Wilkes entered the room about mid-morning. He made him wait all morning long for his meeting. Without apology, Mr. Wilkes began, Well, young man, so you want to be a missionary? Yes, sir, I do. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, sir, I certainly do. Have you any education? Yes, sir, a little. Well, now, we'll try you. Can you spell cat? The young man looked confused and hardly knew how to answer so preposterous a question. His mind evidently halted between indignation and submission. But in a moment, he replied steadily, C-A-T, cat. Very good, said Mr. Wilkes. Now can you spell dog? The youthful Job was stunned but replied, D-O-G, dog. Well, that is right. I see you will do in your spelling. And now for your arithmetic. How much is two times two? The patient youth gave the right reply and was dismissed. Mr. Wilkes gave his report at the committee meeting. He said, I cordially recommend that young man. His testimony and character have duly examined. I tried his self-denial. He was in the morning early. I tried his patience by keeping him waiting. I tried his humility and temper by insulting his intelligence. He will do just fine. So he was being tested for the mission field. And I'm sure that going over to India on the mission field, he would need that humility and patience. So James exhorts them to be patient in their persecution. And those are the last two blanks on your handout. Be patient in their persecution. They, are, they exhorted to be patient in their struggles. They have their reward. Verse 11 says, The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. By the way, if you have doubts about these types of subjects... Talk to me. I've studied them. I would love to talk to you about the subject of why does God allow suffering? Why does it happen? But the simple answer, as I gave you, and as the Bible gives, is that God does discipline those he loves. And God uses that to make us mature in him. 
As I said, waiting is particularly difficult for me. I have a story that, that, that may help, and it's lengthy, but I think it's a really good story. So bear with me as I read this story. There was once a fellow who, with his dad, farmed a little piece of land. Several times a year, they would load up the old ox-drawn cart with vegetables, and they would go into the nearest city to sell their produce. Except for their name and the patch of ground, father and son had little in common. The old man believed in taking it easy. The boy was usually in a hurry, the go-getter type. One morning, bright and early, they hitched up the ox to the loaded cart, and they started on the long journey. The son figured that if they, if they walked faster, kept going all day and night, they'd make market by early the next morning. So he kept prodding the ox with a stick, urging the beast to get a move on. Take it easy, son, said the old man. You'll last longer. But if we get to market ahead of the others, we'll, we'll have a better chance of getting good prices, argued the son. No reply. Dad just pulled his hat down over his eyes and fell asleep on the seat. Itchy and irritated, the young man kept goading the ox to walk faster. His stubborn pace refused to change. Four hours and four miles later down the road, they came to a little house. The father woke up and smiled. And he said, here's your uncle's place. Let's stop in and say hello. But we've lost an hour already, complained the young hotshot. Then a few more minutes won't matter. My, my, my brother and I live so close, yet we see each other so seldom, the father answered slowly. The boy fidgeted and fumed while the two old men laughed and talked away almost an hour. On the move again, the man took his turn leading the ox. As they approached a fork in the road, the farmer led the ox to the right. The left is a shorter way, said the son. I know it, replied the old man, but this way is much prettier. Have you no respect for time, the young man asked impatiently. Oh, I respect it very much. That's why I like to use it, to look at beauty and enjoy each moment to the fullest. The winding path led through graceful meadows, wildflowers, and along a rippling stream, all of which the young man missed as he churned within, preoccupied and boiling with anxiety. He didn't even notice how lovely the sunset was that day. Twilight found them in what looked like a huge, colorful garden. The old man breathed in the aroma, listened to the, the bubbling brook, and pulled the ox to a halt. Let's sleep here, he sighed. This is the last trip I'm taking with you, snapped the sun. You're more interested in watching sunsets and smelling flowers than in making money. Why, that's the nicest thing you've said in a long time, smiled the dad. A couple minutes, uh, a couple minutes later, he was snoring as his boy glared back at the stars. The night dragged slowly. The sun was restless. Before sunrise... The young man hurriedly shook his father awake. They hitched up and went in. Uh, and they hitched up and went on. About a mile down the road, they happened upon another farmer, a total stranger, trying to pull his cart out of a ditch. Let's give him a hand, whispered the old man. And lose more time? The boy exploded. Relax, son. You might be in a ditch sometime yourself. We need to help others in need. Don't forget that. The boy looked away in anger. It was almost 8 o'clock at that morning by the time the other cart was back on the road. Suddenly, a great flash split the sky. 
which sounded like thunder, followed. Beyond the hills, the sky grew dark. Looks like a big rain in the city, said the old man. If we hurry, we'd be almost sold out by now, grumbled his son. Take it easy. You'll last longer. And you'll enjoy life so much more, counseled the kind old gentleman. It was late afternoon by the time they got to the hill overlooking the city. They stopped and stared down at it for a long, long time. Neither of them said a word. Finally, the young man put his hand on his father's shoulder and said, I see what you mean, Dad. They turned their cart around and began to roll slowly away from what had once been the city of Hiroshima. I don't know if the story's true, but it makes the case that because they slowed down, they missed the nuclear bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. We never know. We rush through life so fast. Sometimes we have to follow Dallas Willard's advice to ruthlessly eliminate hurry, to take it easy, and will last longer. You know, I love Jesus' words when he said, tomorrow has enough of worries of its own. I admit I'm most like the young man. I schedule myself and go quickly. And this is something I must admit the Lord is working on me with, and he continues to and probably will until I die. But I also must admit that when I get most stressed and most frustrated and most angry about things, it's because I scheduled myself too thin. I rushed, didn't provide enough margin in the day. One thing is for sure. We must all understand that we are better to store treasure in heaven, repent of treating coworkers or employees unjustly, and be patient waiting until the Lord comes again or calls us home. At that time, Jesus will make things right, and we will have our reward. We must heed James' warning that the rich are warned to repent, and they are warned why they must repent. And the poor are exhorted to be patient and wait on the Lord, for he is near. Wait on the Lord. A passage that I love, and I think we all need to meditate on daily, is Philippians 4, 4 through 8. In this passage, Paul exhorts the persecuted Philippians. The church is under persecution. Paul is writing from some sort of a prison. And he writes this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. That means even in persecution, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. That means even in persecution, let your gentleness be made known to all. The Lord is near. By the way, how are we doing with that? How are we doing with rejoicing in the Lord when we think we're being treated unfairly? Paul was treated unfairly. The church at Philippi was treated unfairly. They're told to rejoice in the Lord. They're even told, they're even told to let their gentleness be made known to all. You know, God gives us grace. We should give others grace too, but we're not that good at it. I started reading um, this uh, version of Les Miserables, which is spelled Les Miserables, but that's a French thing. Anyways, um, Les Mis, and it's an eight-year-old version. It's a version for kids, okay? So I'm reading it to the kids. And if you know the story, in the very beginning, this man who fell on hard times as a kid or a young man stole bread to make to, to, to feed family. Uh, he was put in prison for 17 years. He gets out, and a bishop, a bishop takes him in. But the bishop had nice silver, 
And the bishop had nice candlesticks. You probably all know the story. And so in the middle of the night, this man who had hard times tried to get away stealing the silver. Or it might have been the candlestick. It doesn't matter. But he's, he's immediately caught. He's immediately caught. And he's taken before the bishop. And he's accused. And the bishop says, you forgot the rest. You forgot the silver, the candlesticks. The bishop gave him grace. How are we at giving grace? Paul says, the Lord is near. And in verse 6 in Philippians 4, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's our pattern for thinking. Rejoice in the Lord. Let your gentleness be made known to all. How can we do that when we face hard times? How can we do that when the world is falling apart? How can we do that? This is how we do it. Don't worry about it. Pray about it. Pray with petition. Pray with thanksgiving. You have time to worry, you have time to pray. And then, and then the peace of God, which is far above all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we pray instead of worry, when we, when we, when we give thanks instead of worry, we have a lot to be thankful for, starting with our salvation in Christ. When we do that, the peace of God the peace of God guards us. There's a picture of a, of a soldier guarding a wall. The peace of God guards us. But you still have problems with worry, and so do I. So we have to think on different things. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. As we wait on the Lord, as we're patiently waiting on the Lord, change the channel in your head. Think on things that are true, noble, pure, right. How do we do that? Meditate on Scripture. Psalm 119.97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. Or what about Colossians 3? Set your mind on things above. The rest of Colossians 3, do all things with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We need to meditate on things of the Lord. We need to pray and pray with thanksgiving. And we need to patiently wait on the Lord. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I pray that you really would help us patiently waiting on you. Patiently waiting on you. Lord God, help us to truly be able to rejoice in you always. Even in persecution, rejoice in you. Help us to take every thought into captivity and to obedience to you, Lord God, uh, which 2 Corinthians 10.5 says. We need your help, Lord. We cannot do this on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to reign within us. We need to live out John 15. You are the vine. We are the branches. We cannot do this except by living with you. Help us to live with you. And Lord God, the first step, of course, in living with you is committing our lives to you. Lord God, if there's anyone here who has never confessed their sinner in need of a Savior, believed in you as the one and only Savior, trusted in you and committed to you, may today be the day of salvation. If there's anyone here who needs to rededicate their life to you, may today be the day of rededicating their life to you. Lord God, may we live with you. May we firmly make the decision to be with you in order to become like you. To learn and do all that you say, and may we arrange our affairs, arrange our life around you. You call us to be followers of you, to make you Lord of our life. Not just believe in you, but be committed to you. Help us to be committed to you, to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing.
to him is going to be number 87, leaning on the ever. 